The Gospel of John, chapter 1. We are blessed to have you with us this morning and early afternoon in a little while. The study of the Gospel of John is groundbreaking when you do it for the first time, but it remains that every time you look into the life of Jesus Christ. It's something that you don't ever get tired of because the Word of God is designed to always be new to us. The truths of it are eternal, therefore they never get old. And so is the person of the Logos, the eternal Word of God. And as we saw a few weeks ago when we began this study in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What a monumental statement to begin this, this gospel. To see Jesus not only as eternal, with no beginning and no end, yet for us He was in the beginning as the Word. He was the Creator of all things. And He is a part of the Godhead. One God in three persons. He is the light and the life of men. As we studied last time, and so leading into this next section that we want to deal with this morning, beginning with verse 6, we are directed briefly to a man that we are told was sent from God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, each of the synoptic gospel writers, and if you haven't been with us uh, over the last three weeks, uh, the synoptic gospels are the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic because synoptic means seen together. They, they deal with primarily the, the same uh, accounts, uh, the same events in the life of Jesus. Uh, they deal with uh, many of the same parables that Jesus taught and so on. So they, they are united in that particular sense. John is unique from that. That's why he, they, John is not one of the uh, synoptic gospels. So, uh, yet they're, they're all, uh, non-contradictory. They do not contradict. They only complement each other from the various perspectives and positions that, that these gospel writers, uh, were inspired to come from. But each of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
they introduced Jesus' public ministry with an outline of the, of the ministry of John the Baptist. But we notice here that John, back in verse 6, John the Apostle, who's writing, never mentions this John as the Baptist. He just says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And that is because he never really mentions any other John in in his gospel. And so there really are only two Johns to mention. There is the John who was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That is, again, the author of this letter or this gospel. And the John who was chosen to be the forerunner and the very special witness of the Messiah. Introduced to us in verse 6. The other gospel writers call him John the Baptist. But in fact, we can say that this John's sole purpose, the John mentioned in verse 6, that his sole purpose on earth was to witness and to bear testimony to the light of the world. That was his sole purpose on earth. His purpose wasn't to start churches. His purpose wasn't to start uh, ministries and, and, and whatnot. Or even his purpose on this life was not really just to come and dunk people in water. That was not his purpose. His sole purpose on earth was to witness and to bear testimony to the light of the world. We will see a lot more of that in, in the rest of John chapter 1. But his purpose stands as a dynamic example for every believer. What is our purpose as believers in Jesus Christ? As followers of Jesus Christ? Our purpose then as believers is to bear the same witness as John. Excuse me, and that witness is that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That is our purpose. And we need to take that purpose seriously. So we want to begin by looking at the commission given to John by God himself. The commission that was given to John by God. It's a, it's a very interesting one when you think about it. Because in verse 6 of our text, John the Baptist is called a man sent from God. This, was, this man was a man and only a man. We need to understand that. He was a man and only a man. Now the good thing about that is that we are men and women here, but we're only men and women, but God has changed us. God has made us new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if God could use a man like John the Baptist, he can use people like us. That's an encouragement here, right? All right, good. I want to know that you're still with me here and you're awake. Are you awake this morning? I just want to let you know it's 1135 in the morning. So you need to be away. This man was a man and only a man. But the idea here is found in a very strong contrast between what had been said about the Logos, who is Jesus Christ, and what is now being said about John. The Logos was and is eternal from the beginning, and yet without no, I should say with no beginning and with no end. John came into existence at his birth, as all men do, as all of us did. We came into existence at birth. But really before that, even in the heart and mind of God. Even before we were in the womb, God knew us. Y'all do know that about God. All right. So John was the son of a man, whereas Jesus was the only begotten son of God. There are some distinctions here. 
Because in John 3.16, as we all know this verse, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, but His only begotten Son. But John was a man who had been a son of a father, but is now a vessel in the hands of God. Because the phrase sent from God in verse 6 is quite significant in that the words for sent from God in the Greek, the Greek is apostello paratheo. Apostello, we of course get the word apostle from that, which means those set apart and sent out. Para, P-A-R-A, para, which, which means alongside of. And then Theo is God. So send from God, apostello para Theo, literally means that John was set apart and sent from the very side of God. What we need to understand is not so much that John was at the very side of God in heaven, but literally it means that he was in the very heart of God. Just like each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ have been in the very heart of God when he sends us out as his servants. So this has the understanding that although he was just a man, he was nonetheless sent from the very heart of God with a high calling and with a mission. And when I say a high calling, that is every calling that the Lord gives us as believers in Jesus Christ. No calling is minuscule. No calling from God is minor. Every calling is serious. It is important. It is one of enormous responsibility and accountability. And that is clearly seen in the very purpose in the writing of this gospel. As we noticed at the very beginning of of our study back a few weeks ago, in John 20 verse 31, John toward the end of the gospel gives us the purpose of his writing this gospel. He says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. That is the purpose for John. That was the purpose for the Baptist. That is the purpose for us. The very same purpose. To use our understanding of the Gospel of John to lead others to the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. To lead others to believe in Jesus Christ, that in believing in Him they might have life eternal through His name. That should be our purpose. That should be our calling for each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. It's a serious call. It's a high call. And it's a call of great responsibility. We should never take the responsibilities God has given us lightly. And we have to have accountability to do it. John's name, and of course the apostle's name also, is significant in that the name Yohanan in the Hebrew, Yohanan, or Yohanan, in Hebrew means the grace of the Lord. The grace of the Lord. John the Apostle and John the Baptist were certainly chosen pro, uh, to proclaim that the, the grace of the Lord, personified, was now to enter upon the scene of world history. The grace of the Lord personified, that's Jesus. 
What was the cry, as we'll learn next time, the, the, the cry of, of, of John the Baptist from, from, the, from the very uh, uh, prophecy in Isaiah, prepare ye the way of the Lord, the embodiment of God's glorious grace. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, the embodiment of God's glorious grace. And so as we consider John and his commission, we consider then in verse 7 of the text, the same, speaking of John, came for a witness. Now we see greater the understanding of the commission given, because the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Anytime you see a word twice in a verse like this, that is very significant and it is very important to understand that it is, it, is a, it is a point that needs to be driven home very strongly in our hearts. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He, speaking of John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So I mentioned the word witness there. If you uh, ever mark in your Bibles, uh, as many of you do, it's okay. Uh, just underline that word witness both times. To realize the importance of that word, because the word witness is the Greek word marturia. That's spelled in the Greek M-A-R-T-Y-R-I-A, but it's pronounced marturia. And it comes from the Greek word martus, M-A-R-T-Y-S. Even though it's, it, it's pronounced with a U, it's, it's really written with a Y. M-A-R-T-Y-S, martus. Do we know a word that sounds like that word in the English? The word martyr. But it isn't martyr as, as some people in their own religious sense, for example, in the Islamic sense, it's not the same way that it's used here. The understanding of a, of a martyr in the Christian sense is, is very significant. The word witness is important throughout the whole of the Gospel of John. Its meaning is clear. It means evidence given, judicially or generic, but it is evidence given, it is a record, it is a report, it is a testimony, and or a witness. That is what a martyr or martus or marturia or a witness is. Evidence given, a record, a report, a testimony, and a witness. Now, this matter of being a witness has always been a serious issue. It has always been a serious issue because it pertains to a couple of things. First of all, it pertains to the establishment of truth. You go as a witness uh, in a, in a uh, judicial manner... And you are supposed to do what? You are to say, you know, uh, the things that I say, uh, I say, you know, uh, as truth, uh, so help me God, you know. I swear that this is, what I, that my testimony is truth. And then, you know, you sit there and they ask you questions and you begin to lie. Right? Well, I hope you don't, but obviously in certain court cases they do. But anyway, you all understand now what we're saying here. The matter of being a witness always has been a serious issue because it pertains, first of all, to the establishment of truth. And secondly, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, it also relates to providing a foundation for faith. When we make a witness, when we make a testimony, when we give 
that kind of evidence, we are stating the foundation for our faith. In effect, it does even more than that because it declares a full commitment of a person. When you give a witness or a testimony, you are giving a full commitment as a, as, as a person who believes the things that you're saying. If you were to take again that stand in a witness box and testify that such and such is the truth of the matter, then you are no longer neutral. You're no longer neutral. You said, this is my testimony. This is the truth. Now you cannot be wishy-washy. You have stated truth. You're no longer neutral. You have committed yourself in the testimony given. The Apostle John is letting us know that there are those like John the Baptist, people like the Apostle Paul and Simon Peter and all of the apostles and down through the ages, all of the disciples of Jesus Christ, those who have come, even those who have given their lives for Jesus Christ through every generation, down through people like John Wesley and Charles Spurgeon and and others, D.L. Moody, and, and you could go on and on even into our modern times. All who have committed themselves to Jesus Christ, committed completely, committed totally, committed wholly to the Lord. And when I say holy, I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y, which means totally and completely. Wholly committed to the Lord. And we've all been called to, to this testimony and to this witness. All of us have been called to it. Not just some people. Not just some saints, and I say saints as those living and passed on, but saints who believe in Jesus Christ. We've all been given this call. This is our commission. In fact, when you read Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the words of Jesus before he ascends to heaven, uh, after being, after risen from, being uh, risen from the dead and being with his disciples in the upper room, this is what he says, but you shall receive power. Actually, before the upper room. But you shall receive power, he says, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. There's the word, martus. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And over time, today we are in the uttermost part of the earth. Unless we were born in Jerusalem or lived in Judea or in the region known as Samaria, we are in the uttermost part of the earth and yet the word has come to us and, the, and, and as the word has come to us, so has the testimony. And the testimony is ours. And then think of this, that the message that was given to John was in fact a given message. The message of John is a given message. Now it's important to understand this. Because it wasn't left up to the servant of God to think up of a message. To think up a message. It just says, okay, John, go talk about me, but whatever you want to say, you know, it's up to you. No. He wasn't dependent upon his own reason or his thoughts or his ideas as we are not. We have been given the full uh, testimony of the Word of God, haven't we? Right? You did bring your Bibles this morning. You did, right? All right. And don't say, well, I brought in my phone. No, no, no. Did you bring your Bible? Okay. I'm going to get people throwing things at me. Folks, we have the Word of God. We have the message. It's never changed. The message does not change. I'll talk about this a little bit in in, in a minute. 
But it was a given message. And his message is our message. And what is the message? Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That is the testimony and the witness that we must give. Why? Because once we were in darkness, now we are in the light of the glory of God. Once we were dead spiritually, but now we are alive in Jesus Christ because of the light of the glory of God that was shining into our hearts, and we realized what our need was, and we cried out to God for mercy, and He showed His mercy by giving us the truth of the gospel that we could believe and receive. Once we were in the despair of hopelessness, But we saw the love of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we came to him. That is the message. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 17, Paul says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. What an important statement for us to see that. Because even in Paul's time, they were corrupting the Word of God. But you know what? We're, we're living today in a time when so many people have corrupted the Word of God through, through writing uh, translations that, that, that really do not express the truth of the Word of God. Uh, they've, 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 they've translated the Word of God to the, to the point of, of, of wash, you know, whitewashing it or, or watering it down. There, there's so many different things that have happened to where there's some churches today that are churches that are just uh, affected by the issues of, of what, you, what they can do to entertain people. You know, we're not here to entertain you. We're here to teach you God's Word. There's a, there's a big difference. You want entertainment, you know, go to the Plaza Theater. We came here to worship the Lord. We came here to worship the one who created all things and gave us life. The one who has saved us from that darkness and, moved, and, and translated us into his marvelous kingdom of his light. That is why we're here. So, so we're not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Paul was one of the great uh, statesmen in the sense of, of what, he, what he sees as the purpose of, of his life and our lives, which is to preach Christ and him crucified. Which is to say that if we boast in anything, we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. We boast in everything that Jesus Christ has done for us so that His name will be honored, His name will be glorified, His name will be above all names. That's the way we need to see the Word of God. Not as something that we can pick and choose. Well, we like this, we don't like that. So, John had a message from God. John was sent from the very heart of God with this message. We'll see more of this, of course, next time. But the mention that John was not that light reveals something about John. It reveals his humility. Something that we're going to look again more closely in the next time. But suffice it to say that even Jesus said some great things about John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, verse, uh, verse 11, he said, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there have not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He said, John was great because he was a humble servant of the Lord. But notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greater than John. 
It brought to, it brought to mind this thought, you know, that, that uh, back, back in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, they used to have a, a song called The Limbo Rock. Y'all, how, many, how many remember The Limbo Rock? Let me see your hands. All right, the ancients, the ancient of days are lifting their hands, you know. And you know, the, the Limbo Rock, what, what, you remember what it said? How low can you go? But not this way. How low can you go this way? How low can you go in humbling yourself? John humbled himself to be obedient to the God that sent him with the gospel, with the message of the light of Christ. But those who are humble and that are the least in the kingdom are even greater than John. What a statement. And then Jesus in John 5 verse 35, he said he was a burning and a shining light. Now remember that John himself is saying that the Baptist was not that light, which of course was the light of the world. But he did. But even Jesus, who was the light, said that John was a burning and a shining light. And you are willing for a season to rejoice in his light. A very significant statement by Jesus about John. But it does say a couple of things also about what Jesus has said to us. Because in Matthew chapter 5, you know what Jesus said to us? He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is, a, that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. But there are those who, who would, would put a cover over the light that God has given to them. And, and, and that's something that he doesn't want us to do. He says, no, let your light so shine before men. That they might see the, the, the works of your father and glorify your father. For the things that he does. Do not cover that light. But in the gospel of John, what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Establishing, as, as, uh, again, the fact that he is deity, that he is God. I am the light of the world. That reflects all the way back to John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was the light and the life. So that is the commission now of John the Baptist. And then we find in the next portion John's mission. So from the commission given by God to send him, now comes the mission that Jesus is the light. So in verse 9 it says that was the true light, speaking of the Logos or Jesus, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Again, speaking of the light. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now there is usually some discussion about the grammatical construction of verse 9. Again, let me read verse 9 to you. It says, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, I know that many of you have the New King James Version of the Scriptures, and in, and in that version it reads very similar uh, in construction to the King James but if you look at the margin, sometimes on the margins of the New King James, it has a little note that, uh, that gives the alternate uh, construction or the ultimate uh, grammatical construction. 
So the question is, and it's not a major, it's not a major question, but it is, a, it is an important question. Does the true light, Jesus Christ, give light to every man that comes into the world? Or did the true light come into the world to give light to every man? The reference being that the proper grammatical construction was that the light which came into the world gives light to every man. Well, truly it is Jesus Christ who gives light to every man. But let's understand what that means because that does not mean that he gives universal salvation to every man, nor does he give inner illumination. What it simply means is that Jesus as the light shines on each person either in salvation or in illuminating him with regard to his sin and coming judgment. So if, if uh, this will be clear here as we move on because I want to consider the phrase cometh into the world in verse 9 because that phrase is repeatedly centered in this gospel on him who is the eternal word and the true light. So when you find a phrase that is used often in a, a particular book or throughout uh, the portion, let's say, of the New Testament or whatever, that is usually significant to the person that is speaking of. Cometh into the world is used usually and throughout for the eternal word and the true light, which is Jesus Christ. So the context of the next verse, verse 10, establishes the context of verse 9. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. So the focus is on him who was in the world, who had come to the world. You all see that? That, that, That's Jesus, right? All right, so, excuse me, so then it says the world knew him not. So here's the issue. The light that Christ has brought is for all without distinction. He who is the light has come into the world to give light to every man. And while there are those who refuse to come to the light and remain in darkness, it isn't because there is no light for them. They deliberately prefer the darkness. And so, in a section that we read earlier, we're going to read again now, and then we're going to study later in chapter 3, Jesus said, and this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. What is the implication? There was light, but people chose not to receive it. That light has come into the world, which is again what verse 9 says, that the light comes into the world and gives light to every man. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So they don't want to be corrected. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought, which means that they are uh, done or accomplished in God. So the refusal to come to the light is then seen in the next two verses of our text. That's including verse 10. So in verse 10 it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. So notice that last phrase, the world knew Him not. Light came, but they didn't accept the light because they didn't know Him. Secondly, when you look at verse 11, it says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. So now it goes from general to specific. 
John was not writing of one segment of the population or of any particular race of people. For example, at the beginning of this statement that we just read. But these two verses cover all of the world and then focuses on the one people to whom he came directly and specifically, and that was his own. So when you look at this phrase, he came to his own. In the Greek, it can be translated very simply, he came home. He came home. The word is used for a place that is often used for a homeland. He came home. He came to his own, but his own received him not. In some ways, this can be considered one of the saddest verses in Scripture. The Logos. The Word of God, God the Word, went to his own home, but he had no welcome. He went to his own people, the nation Israel, but they as a whole rejected him. They refused to accept him as the revelation sent by the Father. And you might say, well, was that just at the time of Jesus? Well, let me ask you this. Have you considered the questions asked by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 verse 1? Because they certainly let us know how long this revelation has been rejected. Consider the question, who has believed our report? Here's a prophet who declares the word of God, declares the the messages of God prophetically, powerfully to a nation of people that for the most part don't want to listen to them. This is the reason why eventually the children of Judah end up in Babylon and the children of, of, of the northern nations of Israel ended up in Assyria because they did not listen to the prophets. So here's a prophet saying, who's, who's believed our report? You know what that translates to? Who's believed our witness? And then he asks a second question. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, in, in, in our studies of the book of Revelation, and over the last couple of years or so, we're done with that one now on Wednesdays, but when we were doing that, I mentioned a, a few times about the arm of the Lord being a, a reference to Jesus Christ. Because the arm of the Lord was always the right arm of the Lord. And when we read in Scripture, the Messiah sits at the right hand of God. Uh, we see that in the book of Hebrews even, that um, uh, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But throughout the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, throughout the scriptures, the arm of the Lord will always be a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. So how interesting that the question is asked by the prophet who says, 
who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It is to the very people that God raised up as His own. And He goes on to speak of the suffering servant in this beautiful chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53. And eventually He would say that He was wounded. Speaking of the suffering servant, it wasn't speaking of the nation of Israel. He was speaking of the suffering servant, the Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was led like sheep to the slaughter. And Isaiah was describing the, the very things that, that Jesus himself would be going through, first for the Jew, but also for the world in general. For all who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And this was rejected. This, this was the revelation. These were the revelations that were rejected by the very people to whom the arm of the Lord was revealed. But there's good news. And the good news is that however that burdens our hearts, unbelief was not universal. Unbelief was not universal. Some received Jesus' universal invitation, didn't they? Look at, let's look at verse 12 of our text. But as many as received Him, speaking of the light, Jesus, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And now we come to a, we come to a, a, um, a theme that is going to be carried on, especially in chapter 3, but that is the spiritual birth and the new life. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, to as many as believe on his name. Spiritual birth and new life. And we will again see this as we get to uh, chapter 3. A chapter where Jesus will meet a man named Nicodemus, who comes to him by night because he doesn't want to be seen by others, that he's come to ask this, this man, Jesus, a, a question. Theological question as to his purposes and all. And Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus makes that, that statement and we'll, we'll discuss that when we, when we get to it. But he says, does that mean that we have to, you know, we have to get back into our mother's womb? Maybe it was sarcastic, maybe it wasn't. Nonetheless, Jesus explains to him that the new birth is not a birth of flesh, which is what we're going to see here for just a moment. Jesus would be wonderfully received by some because not everyone rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, after Jesus had risen from the dead and spent a considerable amount of time with his disciples, up to about 500 disciples, as a matter of fact, before he ascended into heaven, and then even after that, when he tells the, the, the disciples, you know, that, that they were going to receive not, not 
long after this conversation that they would receive the promise of the Father. And then they gathered in that upper room in Pentecost. And that's when the winds of the Holy Spirit came through there. And, and there was this, this moving of the Spirit of God. Tongues of fire were upon the 120. They began to speak in other tongues. They began to praise God in these other tongues. And people began to recognize that. And then, and then, and then Peter goes to the temple and he begins to preach Jesus Christ in the temple. And 3,000 men come to the Lord. And even on that day, immediately they went out to the mikvah, uh, ceremonial baths right outside of the temple. And they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the authority of the name of Jesus. So in receiving Christ, they accepted the Messiah as the revelation or the revealer of the Father's will. And they accepted him as the sacrifice for sin. And they received as we also receive by believing and trusting in his name. Paul said, if we confess the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart, confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that he's risen from the dead, you shall be saved. So believing on his name. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, believeth in him, trusts in him, puts a complete weight of faith upon him, they shall not perish but have everlasting life. And the result of receiving Jesus Christ is that a person is given the power to become a child of God. That does not mean that you get the power so that you can make yourself a child of God. No. You've received the authority to be a child of God. Let me clarify that. When you look at verse 12, there is that phrase that says, To them gave he power. The word power is not the word dunamis as it is in Acts 1 verse 8 when it says you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. No, that's the word dunamis in the Greek. Here the word is exousion. And it means power, right, or authority. So you will receive the authority... And then it says, to be the sons of God. To become the sons of God. The, the words son, sons of God is literally in the Greek, tekna theo. Tekna is sons, but generally speaking it is children. Meaning children of God. But the crucial word to understand here is the words to become. You shall receive power to become. To become is the word genestai or genestai, which means to become something a person is not or was not to begin with. To become a person who is, uh, that, is, that you never were. So when a person received Jesus Christ into his life as Lord, Jesus gives that person the power, the right or the authority to become something that he was not to begin with. A child of God. Now this dispels this whole idea that many of us have have learned down through the years. That we hear the world say all the time. Sometimes even in churches. That there is this fatherhood of God and, and brotherhood of man. That God is the father of everyone. And that we are all brothers. Well the Bible doesn't teach that. Because 
thousands of years ago, man fell. And died spiritually. And every one of us born in flesh. We weren't born as children of God. We were born as... Certainly people that God loved, because again, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But when we were born, we were children, first of all, of our parents. But as we grew, we got to realize we were not children of God, but more children of the devil. In fact, this is something that Jesus says in the Gospel of John, as we'll study later on. When he tells his detractors... You're not children of the Father, you're children of the devil. And you've been the children of the Father of lies all this time. It isn't until we come to that place where that light shines upon our hearts and we see our sin and we realize how separate we are from the God who created us that we cry out for the mercy of God. And then he points us to the light and the light is the cross. And we, res- we respond to the cross and the work of Jesus Christ. That is becoming a child of God. Consider Galatians 4 verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In other words, when we came to Jesus, we were adopted by God and have become his children. And then it says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we have the spirit of the son, which is the Holy Spirit. And then he says, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How things change when we become sons of God and children of God. Paul would say in Romans uh, uh, 8 verses 14 through uh, 16, he would say, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You know, we have to check ourselves each and every day. Are we being led by the Spirit of God? That's not God's responsibility. That's our responsibility. To be led by Him. To surrender ourselves to Him each and every day of our lives. To be led by the Spirit of God. But those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And then it says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the source of our sonship is not a birth of flesh. It is a new birth. A completely new birth. John 1.13. Let's go now to the next verse of our text. So let's, let's, let's put that together with verse 12. But as many as received him, to, the, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the new birth does not come by natural descent. It is not of man, in other words. Of God. Look at the last two words of this verse. Of God. It is not by blood. The idea is that heritage, uh, being born of a particular family, race, nation, or people, 
heritage is of no value in becoming a child of God. Secondly, well, not secondly, but continuing our thought in human blood, human blood stained by sin is not what causes a new birth. Secondly, it is not the will of the flesh. In other words, in the Greek, the will of the flesh is ekthelematos sarkos. Ekthelematos sarkos means literally not through sexual desire, the will of the carnal passion. So a person is not spiritually born again by wanting and willing to become a child of God, just like a person wills to have an, a, an earthly child. And then thirdly, it is not by the will of man. And this statement is very interesting because it is in the Greek, ekthelematos andros. Andros comes from the word anthropos, which is the word for man. But andros literally means husband, or is used for uh, the word husband. So in other words, a man cannot bring about the spiritual birth of others no matter who he is. Husband, world leader, whatever. (laughs) Can't do that. The new birth is exclusively of God. So John has covered all of these areas that people would think that somehow we can be considered a child of God through blood, through through the flesh, or, or just through... Uh, man's desires but no and we'll deal with this more in chapter 3 so we come now to the prime verse of our text today that's verse 14 and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth I would encourage you learn and memorize this verse the beauty of this verse, the, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it leads us into a new theological term, but nonetheless the theology is, is, is real. It is real biblically. It is the incarnation. Incarnate, in flesh. God in flesh. Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos, who is God, came to earth as a man. Yet in doing so, he didn't merely appear like a man. He became one. He became a man. He didn't just kind of take the appearance and just, you know, was, you know, from a distance, kind of Hollywood-like, you know. Oh, look, I can see something, but, you know, who is it? What is it? You know, no, no, no. He became as a man. That's the importance of the word beheld here. We'll, We'll get to that in just a moment. But he became a man. He voluntarily, Jesus, the, the, the eternal Son of God, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, He came down. Uh, I, I've used this passage already before, but let's look at it again quickly. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 9. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. All that says is He was God, but made Himself of no reputation voluntarily. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Made. And being found in fashion as a man. He was a man. He humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. A phantom cannot become obedient to the point of death on the cross because a phantom is just a spirit. 
<laughs> in, a, in essence. So he's a real person. And wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Simply, humanity was added to the deity of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus in becoming flesh did not change. Jesus never changed. He never became something that he wasn't. He never became something that the, that the people were. Although he was in flesh, he was still all God. He was fully God and fully man. He had the very nature of God with him. He gave us the very image of the Father. When you saw Jesus, you saw the Father. When you heard him, you heard the Father. When you, when you listened to his messages, you realized he spoke with an authority that was way above what man could ever have. Flesh in this verse points to a human nature, not, not sinfulness or weakness. No, he didn't. He was born without sin, we're told. He was always without sin. And still, he was fully God and fully man. John in 1 John 4 verses 2 and 3 would say, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. You know, that that's pretty easy to interpret, isn't it? Isn't it? You can't really mess that up. Then he goes on in, the, in verse 3 and says, And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. And you think that the spirit of Antichrist was there in John's time. It's even greater now. I mentioned the word beheld because this is a very important word in our understanding of Jesus in the flesh. Because the word beheld means actually seeing with the human eye. To behold or to be, uh, you know, or beheld, we beheld, is we actually saw him with our eyes. You see, none of us can claim to have seen Jesus with these eyes. But the apostles could. And the people to whom Jesus ministered and to whom he preached and all, they saw him with their eyes. The word beheld is used about 20 times in the New Testament. And so there is no room whatever for saying that God in becoming man was merely a vision of some person's mind or imagination. No, he was really man. John was saying that he and others saw the word made flesh. Jesus was beyond question. God himself who became man and who partook of the very same flesh as all other men. Finally, the phrase dwelt among us. This carries a lot of meaning because it recalls God's dwelling with Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. Because the word dwelt is taken from the Greek root word for tabernacle tabernacle God in the Old Testament had given the children of Israel and Moses the very pattern the plans of how to build a tabernacle where God would meet with the people and dwell among them and he gave them such detail 
And the detail was down to the very threads that they were to use. The very materials that they were to use in building the tabernacle. But once it was constructed, that is where God met and dwelt among his people. The same word. When it tells us here in verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That means that Jesus' sonship was quite unique, for he is eternal and is of the same essence as as the Father. The glorious revelation of God, which the Logos displayed, was full of grace and truth. In other words, it was a gracious and truthful revelation. I want to leave you with, with John 1.17 because we'll come back to this next time. But it is the statement that says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And I draw your attention once again to the statements made earlier about being a witness. About being a testimony. About standing fast on the record of being a believer in Jesus Christ. There's no room for neutrality. When you make that commitment, you make it fully. You make it without reservation. You make it without worrying about what the world thinks about you. Because that's where we are today. Christians worrying about what others may think of them. So let's change things. Let's make church lighter and brighter. Or in some cases darker because I've been in some churches, you know, where they turn the lights down and you can't see. And then they put smoke coming out of the bottom of the stage. And they got guys, you know, doing all kinds of weird stuff, jumping around. And I say, I, I get scared. I want to run out the door. Folks, we're not here to entertain you. We're here to give you an opportunity to meet with the creator of the heavens and the earth and to exalt his name above all names and to stand upon the truth of the gospel, to stand upon the truth of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and to know it is there that he took our sins And nailed him to a tree. And that even after shedding his blood for our forgiveness. And being buried for three days. On the third day he rose again from the dead. And he says I will be with you always. If that's your witness. If that's your testimony. Then you're no longer neutral. But you can stand on it. Confidently. And know that the Lord will be your strength. And he'll be your shield. And he'll be your rear guard. And you have the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Never put it aside. 
Never leave it for only rainy days. Read it. Study it. Pray with it. Use it. And keep looking up. And lift up your heads. For your redemption draweth nigh. Jesus is coming. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. We thank you for the goodness of your grace. Your undeserved favor. We thank you for your mercies that are truly new every morning and your compassions that never fail. Lord, every day we have so much to thank you for. And I pray, Father, we never let a day go by that we do not praise you that, do, that we do not exalt you or exalt your name. Father, pour out your spirit on us. Lead us and guide us through your spirit. Envelop us, saturate us, surround us, Lord, with your presence and with your spirit and with your word. Keep the work up of changing our hearts so that each and every day we become more and more like Jesus Christ and more in the image of Christ and more in the character and nature and love of Jesus. And use us, O oh God, in spite of our earthen vessels or the, the earthen vessels that we are, in spite of that, Lord, use us to the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.